Hello, everyone. Welcome to Is It Legal? I'm your host, Dave Plow. Today, you're going to hear an interview with Loon Cam Piper. Loon was born in Burma, graduated high school in the Philippines, and went to college in good old Indiana. Now, she works for the Marion County Prosecutor's Office. She has a passion for helping those who are in our legal system but do not speak English. Before we talk about that, let's get the interview rolling by finding out what it was like growing up in Burma in the Philippines. Growing up in the Philippines, I was uh, 12 years old when we moved to the Philippines. So um, culturally adjusting was a little bit difficult, but I was there with my two sisters. So it was kind of easier to, to navigate to a whole new culture with my sisters and our, our whole family. So that part was a little bit easier. And also they speak, um, where we were, they speak English. So um, I was able to learn my English from them. And I picked up some Filipino, some Tagalogs from going to school and things like that. But um, growing up was just, it was definitely a lot of um, cultural adjustments growing up because the culture is different from Burma. Um, Burma is basically a, uh, when I left, it was a dictatorship um, country. So we didn't have a lot of freedom. The Philippines was a democratic nation then. So there were definitely some things that I thought that our family as a whole thought were very different from how things used to be. But um, friendship-wise and things like that, everybody was friendly and we had a, a, a great time. Um, we got along with people and it, it was it was a great experience growing up there and finishing high school there. Being that you were 12 when you left, did, the, did you notice the dictatorship or the lack of freedoms or anything? I kind of grew up with it there when I was in Burma. I did not realize how bad it was until we went to the Philippines. And, uh, and there was a specific incident I, would, I still remember to this day. Um, my parents were looking at the newspaper in the Philippines, and it was during um, Carissa Aquino's presidency. And there was an article criticizing what she was wearing on the front page of the newspaper. And my parents were just at awe that there's so much press freedom over there and they could just criticize a president's clothing and nobody went to jail. And, I, and then that kind of made me realize, I'm like, oh my goodness, I did not realize, you know, by, by, the rea by my parents' reaction, I did not realize the, um, the, the culture that I lived in Burma where everything is very much suppressed. So what caused you to decide to come to America after your high school career ended? So um, we went to the Philippines because of my parents' um, theological studies. So when they were done with their um, theological studies in seminaries, we came back to Burma to for them to continue with their um, mission work in Burma. And so we all came back as a result. And when we came back, um, I had graduated from high school. I wanted to go to college in Burma, but at that time, when we came back in 1994, the universities had shut down due to a demonstration back in 1988. And so there was um, virtually no no um, avenue for me to continue to um, go to graduates, to undergrad there, unless I start from the sixth grade, where which is the grade I left when I left for the Philippines. Um, and I wasn't going to do that because I was already way past you know right. high school. And so um, I started taking vocational classes, like um, computer classes, accounting classes, and started working for an American law firm there. The government started opening up back in the early 90s, trying to bring in foreign investment. And the uh, only American law firm at that time um, was there taking, you know, um, t making good use of the opportunity. And because of my English that I learned from the Philippines, I was able to get a job there and started working at a law firm, which made me realize that I am kind of interested in um, 
the legal system and how things are operated and things like that. Although the firm that I worked at was a uh, corporate law firm, it kind of goes to show how the law is used to to help people. And so um, I knew that I needed to get an education elsewhere because I wasn't going to be able to get education in Burma. And so I started applying for schools in the U.S., researching schools in the U.K., and finally University of Indianapolis um, accepted me. And so that's how I ended up here in Indiana. Okay. Uh, now, I saw, looking through your LinkedIn, it looked like you started out with business school as your undergrad. I did, yes. Why did you start out with business school? Well, because I had um, worked, when I was working at that law firm, I was basically um, doing a lot of the of the office work, like an office assistant. And so I, de- I dealt a lot with the uh, running of the business, um, just making sure everything is running smoothly, setting up of our internet, uh, e- internet system, um, making sure that um, just making sure that the office is running smoothly, and so I thought that the business aspect was what I was really interested in. So I started off with um, business, and then you found out law was what you were really interested in. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. I've seen that you spent time as a translator. It sounds like that might have started back while you, when you went back to Burma. So did you work more as a translator after you came back or after you graduated law school? I started that when I was somewhat a little bit when I was still doing my undergrad you know, at medical appointments and things like that, just to get um, additional income. And um, after that, when I was, when I started my solo practice, after I graduated from law school, I started, um, it kind of expanded into interpreting for the courts, okay. just because of my um, knowledge in the in the law background, as well as speaking in Burmese, and um, being able to translate um, American legal terms into contextualizing it so that, so that the um, the Burmese person that I'm inter- interpreting to could understand. Right. So that kind of um, how I started it. Was that difficult to do the translation from like the American legal tunes back to the Burmese people and vice versa? It takes a long time, yeah, because our legal systems are very different. Um, we have different terminologies, different legal systems, and explaining uh, the legal system in a way that they understand when we don't have um, a word for that particular word. In Burmese, it, it's just trying to explain um, what it would be like in, Bur- in Burmese or what that means in Burmese as opposed to like trying to find a word. So it is difficult. <laughs> I just recently had to try to explain to my five-year-old what the word before meant without using the word before. And I, I, <laughs> I couldn't wrap my brain around being able to do that. I can't imagine taking a word that doesn't exist in a different right. language and trying to explain that around. Right. Like, uh, for example, probation. The word probation doesn't exist in Burmese. So you have to ex- know what probation is in order to explain to to a person what probation is, basically. And, um, you know, the the rights of a, an individual, the basic constitutional rights that we have here, it's pretty much non-existent. So just explaining what their rights are, what the right to remain silent means, what the right to um, have an appeal means, what, what it means to waive all these things, those are really difficult concepts just because those kind of legal system doesn't exist in Burma. Right. That sounds like, uh, it sounds like it could be a very high stress job. It is. Um, it, it, we just have to make sure that, that the person understand exactly what was said in English. Otherwise, you know, um, this person could be just, uh, waiving his rights without even knowing it. And so there, there's a lot of pressure in just making sure that the interpretation is correct. Okay. You mentioned you were doing that as part of your own 
law firm that you that you had started, correct? I did that on the side. Yes, you did I, that on I, the side. Okay, I, I did. Yes, I have my solo practice, and then I also um, do uh, court interpreting. How'd you come into your solo practice? Um, I started after I was done with um, my law school career. I worked. I volunteered at the uh, Neighborhood Legal Christian Clinic, um, working with their uh, Burmese population with immigration law. And prior to that, I was in the immigration law clinic at my law school for like two years, and I've had experience in that. So when I started my solo, I just kind of started off with um, practicing immigration law. And because I was pretty much well-connected with the community here in Indianapolis, I started taking um, cases uh, from um, the Burmese refugees that we have here. Okay. Now, are you inter- were you interested in immigration law because you are an immigrant, or did you just feel, or was there another reason why you went that route? Basically, because I have been through the immigration law system before, just um, coming here as a as a student, and then um, having having in touch with that immigration law was very interesting to me, and also having that I had that um, clinical experience at the law school made me more interested in doing immigration law, and also. Um, we started having a lot of Burmese refugees population here in Indianapolis, and I also I speak Burmese, and, and, and because I was from Burma, I understand where they're coming from, and then when they have some immigration legal needs, then I end up um, taking their cases. After the break, we will talk about the challenges presented by being in our court system and not understanding the English language. But first, our sponsors at IU Robert H. McKinney School of Law invite you to learn more about their eight live client clinics, including the Immigration Law Clinic, which offers students the opportunity to represent real clients with real legal issues under the supervision of expert faculty. Learn more at mckinneylaw.iu.edu. Coming back, I wanted to get an idea of what is Loon's doing with the Marion County Prosecutor's Office. Over here, I am a uh, deputy prosecuting attorney and also a Burmese outreach specialist. So um, my main role is um, to do my job as a deputy prosecutor. My The uh, other half of my job is um, just going out into the Burmese community and helping the um, our office bridge the gap between um, the Burmese population and the uh, our community here and letting them know, letting the uh, Burmese community know the resources that are available through our office or in the city here um, if they come into, and I help with the victims, um, the rights that they have, they, and all these legal systems are very strange and new to them. So um, just helping them with, with letting them know where the resources are, helping the uh, local community, the American local community, know the challenges of the Burmese community and see where we can um, help each other so that you know we all can be all productive members they, of society. How do they find you, the Burmese people or whoever you're working with? The Burmese people, when I was doing my solo practice, I just had like one or two clients and then they would refer me, other people would refer me to, to their friends. And when I was doing immigration law, because immigration law is federal law, um, I, I was able to represent... Um, clients from different states. So I would have um, Burmese clients wanting to bring their families or, you know, their wives and children from Oklahoma, from Tennessee, from Texas, from pretty much all over the U.S. where there are uh, Burmese population. And it's just through word of mouth. Um, so they kind of knew me and, I, and I'm the only one, I think, so far. <laughs> I've been trying to find, but I haven't seen any other attorney um, Burmese attorney here in Indiana, and I think I'm the only Burmese attorney here in Indiana. Um, and then 
in the whole U.S., I think there's probably only a handful of Burmese attorneys in the whole of the U.S. So it's a mixture of you've done a good job, so you get your word of mouth, but also, you know, if somebody's hunting down a Burmese attorney, you're you're one of few, especially in this I, I hope area. so, yeah. You hope so? <laughs> yes. And also, um, over here, I've just been, because of my contact with the Burmese people when I was doing my solo practice, even when I was doing my solo practice, I've been really involved in my community mm-hmm. in teaching them just the basic um, legal concepts, teaching them what the law is here, what are the basic um, cultures here, so that at least they understand what the law is and not come to court just because not being, not have, you know, legal consequences just because of not just understanding what the law was. So a lot of my um, work, even when I was doing solo, was outreach, basically. And, and, and I was able to do that here at the prosecutor's office and focus it more in the wider scale using the resources that we have here as well. And one of the things you told me beforehand that you're interested in are the basic rights of non-English speakers. I think for, um, especially in the legal setting, I mean, coming to courts and having some kind of a legal issue is already very stressful enough for a person that speaks English, um, unless, you know, they know the legal terms and legal things that's going on, much less for a person that is from a different culture that does not speak English. And also with particular... um, in particular with the Burmese community, um, the Burmese people are here as refugees. Most of them are here as refugees, which means they suffered persecution um, in Burma due to this um, laid out facts, relig- either uh, religious persecution, belonging to a particular ethnic group, believing in a particular, uh, having a particular opinion or imputed political you know, uh, belief. And um, there are like a different specific sets um, of things that they were persecuted based on. And so they were fleeing um, those persecution. And the persecutors are typically the government. And they cannot, they have credible fear of going back to the country. Um, so uh, that's why they were granted refugee status right. outside and they came here as refugees. So they already have this past trauma of, you know, being persecuted by the authority, law enforcement, things like that, the police. And so when they come here in the uh, legal context, they're already very fearful of authority. And so you know, you have barriers after barriers of them trying to understand, much less, you know, uh, comprehend what else is going on. And so just explaining to them when they, you know, what are the um, the rights when they get accused, like um, the difference between a jury trial and a court trial, they have no understanding of that. But what does a trial even mean? Like, I have a right to a trial, you know, I'm presumed innocent until it's proven. And all these concepts are very new to them. And so because of their fear of authority and being very cautious about everything, um, it's very hard to know if they understood what you said or if they're just saying yes just to appease you, you know. So it's just like making sure, knowing the culture of why they're just saying yes when they may not really understand goes a long way to make sure that they understand their rights, what is being said, uh, because they may be waiving very important rights if they just say yes without really understanding. And it's, I feel like it's very important for them to know exactly. So you have a dual role as not only something of a friendly face, but also as an educator to them. Yes. Yes, I try to. Yeah. I think with part of the um, the basic rights that I talk about to non-speak, non-English speakers is one of the things that I'm really passionate about and trying to do here in Indiana is um, get them adequate language access, especially um, for the courts, as well as, you know, for the medical, that could be a life and death treatment, you know. So, uh, but my because of my uh, practice, my main concentration is on the... Um, court system, language access for the court system. Um, Currently, we don't have 
any court certification program for Burmese language, not in Indiana, not in the whole of the U United States. So that is a huge challenge um, because most of the language like Spanish or French or other languages, you have court certified interpreters. They go through different process of attaining this certification um, and we don't have that for the Burmese. And so the Burmese interpreters are, there's no way of assessing the quality um, have they received training on the legal terms? Uh, what kind of training have they had? How qualified are they? You know, there's no process to to kind of see where they're at. And that is really important because as we talk about, if the interpretation was wrong or if it was wrongly misunderstood, then the rights are at stake. And even a plea or something could just be um, basically almost, you know, it doesn't really make sense when the person didn't understand what was being said, right. even though you have this signed document. Mm -hmm. And so um, trying to get some kind of a certification program for Burmese, um, and that is, a, um, is really, I think, important. And it's really difficult for the Burmese language because Burmese is a national language. However, there's hundreds of languages within Burma. And in Indiana, we have predominantly an ethnic group called Chin. We also have different ethnic groups from the Karen, the Kachin, and other, you know, um, ethnic groups from Burma. But the majority of the ethnic group here in Indiana comes from the Chin ethnic group. Even within the Chin ethnic group, they speak probably, we speak about 30 different languages. They're not even dialects. And so when you're trying to find, when you're trying to provide adequate access to the court system, um, you know, you have to know what language they speak, what ethnic group, and then what language, and then find a qualified interpreter from that group. And um, and that is very challenging, but it has to be done because um, just because there's no um, interpreter, you can't just say, I can't provide them. Yeah. As someone that grew up uh, in that type of culture where there are all those different languages, is it difficult for you to communicate with uh, all the many different like you said, they're not even dialects. They're like full languages. Right. Do you have a hard time? Um, I do. I've had, um, I speak Burmese, which is the uh, official language. Mm -hmm. And I also speak a uh, language of Chin, which is Zo or Tidim. Um, so if my clients or if somebody that I talk to speak those two languages, I'm fine. But if they don't, then I have to get an interpreter that may, be understand, that may understand Burmese and that could speak in their language which may be a, another language of Chin mm -hmm. or a totally different ethnic group's languages. Right. So at least we have, I have, we have to have a, a common um, language of Burmese so that even though, if they don't, even though they don't speak English, then at least they can still communicate to them in Burmese and they could in turn translate that information in their language. So it is a long, it, it is a uh, tedious process. I was going to say that's, it's like a game of telephone almost yes. at that point. You start getting enough people involved, it's going to be difficult. Yeah. Um, when I, when I did outreach, things like that to the community would have, would have had uh, three interpreters stand up, only three different steps of interpreting. Someone speaks in English, and another person would interpret them in Burmese, and then a third person would interpret in the majority of the uh, audience, whether it be a language of Chin or a different language. So we've had that situation before, and it takes you know three times. Right, I can see I can see why a certification process would be helpful in this instance, especially where you yeah, have multiple guys. Exactly, and and so um, especially if we have at least the Burmese um, certification process. You know, you can reach out to a lot more people than 
um, if you have none or if you have just a minor uh, a minor language speaking population. I'm good. If you've got anything else you want to say. Okay. I, I think one other program that I do in our office is what I want to, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. No, yeah. You give the me programs, more, I'm a happy guy. Okay. The program that um, we have in our office, in the Marin County Prosecutor's Office, that uh, I'm trying to do a lot of my outreach to the Burmese community are on, um, we have a lot of like a fraud prevention issue, fraud prevention um, educational program, mm -hmm. um, burglary prevention, cyber safety programs for both parents and the children. Um, we have, um, I'm also trying to um, do presentations on a child rearing, I guess, I guess how uh, parenting a child because the system of parenting a child in Burma is very different from here mm -hmm. and it could be misunderstood as you know, a violation of the law when it's not. So just um, teaching the Burmese population on what are the norms here in parenting, what is considered neglect versus discipline, you know, things right. things like that. Or, um, and also um, for the Burmese uh, population, the using a credit system or, you know, the mortgage things or having insurance, those are new concepts that doesn't exist in Burma. And so um, just making sure that, that, they are protected so that they're not vulnerable to fraud or or um, identity theft of some kind. So um, we do a lot of, try to do a lot of education on those front as well. Yeah, just trying to do a lot of acclimation, it sounds like, especially yeah. today when fraud is so easy, for lack of a better term. <laughs> right, right. And and um, we didn't have social security system. You know, it's only in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So if somebody has access to your social security number and your date of birth, then, you know, it's pretty much it. And if you don't know what those numbers are and how important they are, then, you know, you're not likely to be protected. It's one of those instances where if you don't know, you don't know. Like right. you're just getting taken advantage of and you have no idea. Yeah. Um, same goes for driving rules and school buses and things like that. That doesn't exist in Burma. That only exists here. So what? how do you deal with it when you see a school bus? Because over here we grew up with it, so we stop right. when there's a, a stop sign. Yeah. But if you've never seen that before and you just come here, you wouldn't know to do that. And so just because you don't know, you might be arrested and charged with like reckless driving or something when, you know. Right. So it's just a lot of education. Yeah, sounds yeah. like it. All right. Uh, we've, we've spoken a lot about the cultural differences and changes that, that people go through when they come over here. What were some, to you, what were some of the major cultural differences when you came to America? The very, the, it's a really interesting thing, actually, because when I first came to America, um, I've, you know, I've grown up in Burma, I've grown up in the city in Rangoon, I've lived in the Philippines, mm -hmm. so at least I've been out of my country before, and I thought I was pretty okay, but I came to Indiana, and everybody just drives, it's crazy, <laughs> and everybody has just, there's just only one person in each car. I was like, my goodness, because I've lived in, um, whether I lived in Manila, or in Baguio City, or in Rangoon, it's you know, we just get, take taxi or use public transportation. Nobody really drives that much just because of the congestion or something. And it's like you just have to learn how to drive. So I learned how to drive after I came to the U.S. and I was like 26. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that was very interesting. The other thing was um, at the, I went to the grocery stores and um, how, like, you have um, different aisles for different type of things and mm -hmm. you have a whole dedicated section for pets. <laughs> Yes. And they're up yes, in the same do. level as human food. Right. And that was just very like interesting to me because um in Burma, yeah, we we you know we've had, there are people that have pets and things like that, right. but then pet animal are not, you know, it's it's just a different way of I would not have thought about that, but I can see how that would be 
different other yeah, places. Yeah, so that was very interesting. I think those were the things that really stick up in my mind of how different the culture is. That is it for Loon Cam Piper. My thanks go out to her for inviting me out to the Marion County Prosecutor's Office so we could have this conversation. You can see pictures from this and most of our other interviews on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash is legal. It was mentioned that Loon went to college in Indiana. What I haven't yet said is she is a graduate of our sponsor, the IU Robert H. McKinney School of Law, who would like our listeners to know about their pro bono program which enables law students working with practicing attorneys to get hands-on experience while helping the underserved. Opportunities exist in administrative law, criminal law, family law, and many other areas. See their website for more information at mckinneylaw.iu.edu. That is it from me for now. Keep an eye on our Facebook page and our Twitter account at IsItLegalPod. For information on our next set of interviews and when they'll be coming out. But until then, you can catch all of our old episodes at our website, isitlegalpod.com. And remember, I'll catch you next time right here on Is It Legal?